in our culture, in our generation, it's common when we're sharing our faith to emphasize relationships, relationships, relationships. Because we do know that many of us have come to faith because of relationships. Maybe a parent, a Sunday school teacher, a pastor, a coworker shared the gospel with us and it just kind of arrested our hearts and God did that transformational work. Now in the old days, when it came to evangelism, sometimes you would see maybe a, a preacher on the sidewalk up on top of a soapbox, right? And he had the big bullhorn and he was yelling. And we think, oh, that's kind of archaic. Or in the old days, in the church I grew up in, we used to have a, a, a rack. It had to be this long and this high, and it was filled with every tract. Some of you don't even know what a tract is, but those of you that do know, these little brochures on every subject that we would take and we would hand them out to people. So some people used to come to Christ through tracks. And then billboards and signs. So I want to show you one. Maybe you've seen this kind of thing uh, growing up, the, the billboard on the side of the road or on the side of someone's barn. or Usually they tend to be in rural areas where maybe the sign bylaws are a little more lax. But this one's pretty common. I remember seeing this one as a child traveling around St. Thomas in London where we grew up, prepare to meet thy God. And we think, I mean, the picture just looks archaic, does it not? It's black and white. The word thy is in there. We think, oh, that's, that's kind of an old school way of evangelism. Now, it's probably true that more people still come to Christ through relational evangelism, but God can also use tracts and God can also use soapbox preachers and God can also use signs like this. And the reason why God can use signs like this is because this actually is the very word of God. Did you know that this is a verse found in the Bible? It's found in the book of Amos. And we're going to study the book of Amos for the next couple of weeks. There's several chapters. We're not going to look at every verse, but we're going to do an overview of Amos. And in the book of Amos, we are asked the question, are you prepared to meet your God? And this is what I would like for us to consider today. So presumably many of you would say, I'm a Christian. I'm a follower of Jesus. Some of you are here because you're interested kind of checking it out. Someone's brought you to church and you're considering the things of God and the claims of Jesus. Think about this question. Am I, so Aaron, am, are you prepared to meet your God? What if this is the last day that I will ever live on planet earth? Am I prepared to meet God? Or even if I'm around for another 45 years, am I prepared to meet my God? It's common, by the way, to think of God as our lover, our buddy, maybe even our therapist, our healer, our counselor, our friend. But did you know that God also wants our allegiance and our loyalty? And it's possible to not be prepared to offer that to him because our lives can be cluttered up with sin. Are you prepared to meet your God? In Amos, the people of God are taught that God wants us to seek him always so that we can have life with him always. God wants us to seek him out. God wants us to live for him. God wants us to surrender ourselves to him. And it might be that some of you have not been seeking after the things of God for a long time. It might be that some of you have never been prepared to meet your God. And if that's true, this message is going to be a necessary one for you to hear. And if you listen to it and you respond to it, 
You'll be blessed by it. So let me tell you a little bit about Amos. Amos was a southern prophet. So at the time when Amos was prophesying, he's one of, by the way, this is the Old Testament, for those of you that may not be super familiar with the scriptures. Near the end of the Old Testament, there's 12 very short prophetic books. We call them the minor prophets, not because their message is minor, but because they're shorter books. Amos is one of those prophets. He was prophesying on God's behalf during a period of time when Israel had had a skirmish and had been divided into two. So the top 10 tribes were living in the north. We just call that the northern kingdom in biblical studies. And the southern kingdom was the kingdom of Judah. And sometimes northern prophets spoke to southern people, and sometimes southern people talked to northern people, and sometimes northern people talked to northern people, and sometimes southern people talked to southern people. But in this case, it's a southern prophet prophesying primarily, but not exclusively, against and to the northern kingdom. Not a royal figure, not a man of great pomp and circumstance, just an average shepherd from a small town called Tekoa. And Amos' message was delivered to the people of God, check this out, during a time of great prosperity. Now, how many of us don't appreciate prosperity? It's election time. We're going to vote for the party that promises the most prosperity. I have a job opportunity, another job opportunity. I'm going to pick the one that's going to prosper me the most. I have to buy a car. I'm going to pick the one that's going to benefit me the most. We love to prosper. We love to be healthy. The problem is, is when this physical world within which we live gets too comfortable, what do we tend to do? We tend to sort of take our eyes off God, rest in our laurels. And this is what the nation of Israel had done in the north. They were experiencing physical security, military security, economic prosperity. Things were awesome. So God wasn't necessary. And into this prosperity as they became more and more casual about God, we have this famous message from Amos, prepare to meet your God. So Amos chapter one and two, we're going to do an overview. I want to touch down on several passages in the first half of the book. If you open your Bible and you set your eyes on chapter one, even if you've never read it before, just kind of go through the text, chapter one and chapter two, you'll notice that there are, several nations being addressed through this prophecy. In fact, there are eight, what we call woe judgments delivered against both sacred and secular nations here. This is important because that means that this message is valuable for both, both spiritually lost people. And it's also valuable for spiritually found people who are acting as if they're lost once again. So it's, it's, a, it's a message for those that have never accepted God and those that have accepted God but have fallen into sin, have become casual and nonchalant about their relationship with God. God has been betrayed by his people, and of course he'd been betrayed by the surrounding nations, the godless nations, and now he's responding. And if you look at the text, you can look at chapter 1, verse 3, set your eye there. Chapter 1, verse 6, chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 1, verse 11, verse 12. And then you look at chapter 2, verse 1, 4, and 6, and you'll have a repeated refrain come to your eye. 
It says, for three transgressions of Damascus and for four. And then the, the recipient is just switched out. For three transgressions of Gaza, of Tyre, of Edom, of Ammon, of Moab, of Judah, of Israel. And for four. This statement appears eight times in this prophetic book. Now, before I explain to you what's going on here, let me just ask you a very practical, very relational question. Let's say that you have a very good friend. You've agreed. We're friends. We're in a relationship. We trust each other. We know each other. You got that person in mind? Now, suppose for a moment that person betrayed you or ridiculed you behind your back or cheated on you in some way. How many times would you permit that to happen in that relationship before you said enough is enough? Maybe some of you'd be like once, one strike, you're out. Maybe if you're a little more on the grace side, two or three times and you're out. How many times would you allow someone to break your confidence, break your trust before you said enough is enough? God is pointing out the fact that he had been long-suffering toward these nations. How many times had they broken faith with him? Once, then again, then a third time. Okay, now we're into a multiple offenses against God. Three is multiple. It's multiple offenses against God. This is what he's communicating when he said, for three transgressions of Damascus, but then he, he goes even a step further, and for four. What do we see here? We see the long-suffering, patient nature of God. God had a whole list for each nation of examples where they had betrayed him, turned their back on him, blasphemed him. What it does is it's intended to elevate in the reader and hearer's mind the multiple sins that have been committed by both sacred and secular people against God. And that reminds us then that God has a reason to be upset. He's tolerated it long enough. Now, what are the sins that these people had been committing? Let me just touch on a few. They're pretty significant. Look at chapter 1, verse 13. What were they doing? Killing unborn babies and pregnant women in battle. That's kind of disgusting, but ripping open pregnant women so their babies would fall out and they'd be left to die. Pretty gross. In chapter 2, verse 7, again in chapter 4, verse 1, and in chapter 5, verse 12, there's a bunch of injustice being committed against the afflicted or the poor. They were just overlooking the needy among themselves, just the, the rich kind of lining their own pockets, the poor and the afflicted being left, be, left by the side of the road. That's sin number two. Chapter two, verse seven, there's a reference there to sexual perversion being committed by these nations. Chapter five, verse 12, there's a reference to bribery, cheating in business, essentially. And then in chapter five, verse 21, really speaking of God's people, God calls them out for all of their ritual all of their religious pomp and circumstance that 
was action without holiness attached. And then there's one more. Chapter 6, verse 8. Pride. Good old-fashioned ego. Pride. So God had put up with this how many times? Not once, not twice, not three times, but four times plus. Again, it's a, it's a poetic mechanism. It would have happened many more times than that. But the point is, multiple times these nations had sinned against God in a multiplicity of ways. So let me ask you, have you committed any of these acts? If you assess your own life, could you say that maybe, maybe you've been guilty of taking the life of an unborn child? It happens in our culture. Maybe you've overlooked the afflicted or the poor. Maybe you're guilty of sexual perversion or bribery or coming to church and doing the right thing, but there's no holiness attached to it. Or maybe there's pride in your life or some other sin. How many of us have committed these acts as well? You know what? 2,800 years, 28 centuries after Amos called out Ammon and Damascus and Tyre and Judah and Israel and all the other nations for these things, guess what? We're still doing them. We're still doing them. We're not even that creative in the ways that we rebel against God. We're just recycling the sins of the past. How many times have you sinned against God? How many times have I sinned against God? Definitely more than four times. Definitely more than four. And if I think that I will somehow get a pass or God is overlooking these things or because God has been patient and long-suffering, he obviously doesn't care that much. This message is designed to remind us that God actually notices everything. And if we want to be prepared, church, we need to deal with them head on. So maybe as you think of these sins, let, let me just pull one out, sexual perversion or pride. You're like, yeah, this has been in my life for a long time, but I mean, I know it's wrong, but God really hasn't cracked the whip yet. He hasn't brought down the hammer. Oh, you wait. If you don't deal relentlessly with the sins that are part of your life, then you're not prepared to meet your God. So we need to be relentless in our repentance toward God. Now, I want to take us right into the Bible now. And we're going to kind of look at a few of these chapters. And I want to present to you four ways that we can be prepared to meet our God. Four things for us to consider. Four things for us to act on if we are going to be prepared to meet our God. Here's the first one. You can write it down if you're taking notes. It's found in chapter 3, verse 3. Very simply, remember who you are. Remember who you are. As God unpacks these words of warning and woe, he speaks also to the believing community in chapter 3. And he says to his people, check it out in chapter 3, look at verse 2 actually. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Now, of course, we know that God knows all the other nations. And we know that at times people that were outside of covenantal relationship with God, outside of Israel, there weren't the seed of Abraham, were grafted in. But under the old covenant, it's also true that God's primary, almost exclusive focus at times was on this one family, Israel, which again at this time was divided into two nations, Israel and Judah. God is reminding them, do you understand how blessed you've been? 
I didn't have to pick you. I didn't have to go to Abraham and identify him as one that would be the father of a great godly, holy nation. I could have picked the Ammonites. I could have picked the Moabites. I could have gone with the Philistines. I could have picked whoever I want. But Israel undoubtedly were special recipients of God's blessing. But they're sinning against him. So God brings this reminder to them. You only have I known of all the families on the earth. And then it seems contradictory, but you understand why. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. In other words, I have reason, extra important reason to punish you. Because you know better. Now, as we consider these words, we need to also kind of leap the gap into the new covenant because most of us aren't Israelites here today and we're not physical descendants of Abraham. But if you go to the epistles, go to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, what does it say about us? We're a chosen people. We're a holy nation. Same kind of language, spiritualized, of course, is applied to the church. Do you understand what we have received? Do you understand what Jesus has done for you as a member of his church? Do you understand the unique blessings of being a follower of God? Do you understand how many people in this world are lost and have never even heard of the gospel? Never read a Bible? We have been blessed beyond belief. How much more responsible then are we to honor and glorify and worship and obey God? We've been created We've been well-resourced to live a godly life. We have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. We have received spiritual and tangible blessings. Man, we're alive. I didn't create this body, this mind, this soul. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't choose to be. God created me by his sovereign grace. How often do we think about that? How often do we allow that thought to really to penetrate our hearts and in our minds? You know, what we often fall into is the trap of whining about what we don't have. Yeah, but Lord, I don't have this X, Y, Z. I didn't receive this A, B, C. We spend time thinking about what we don't have, but consider for a moment what you do have. You're here. You're alive. You're sitting under the sound of the gospel. You're comfortable. People love you. You exist. And if you're a member of his church, you're part of a unique family that is known by God. This should stimulate us to live lives that bring honor and glory to God. I don't know how old each of you are, but maybe just run this equation in your mind. Just a real rough equation, a little bit of math. What percentage of your life, if you live to like the average age of 80, let's say in Canada, what percentage of your life is now behind you? And what percentage is before you? Just think about that for a minute. You know, you don't get to hit the reboot button at the end and start all over. You get one life to live. It's moving in a 
definitive direction. You can't ever reclaim yesterday. You'll never be able to relive today. You've been blessed by God. Are you using your life in a productive way, the way God has designed you to use your life? Or are you wasting it? Are you arguing with God? Are you squandering your resources? Are you accusing God of things? Are you living with pride in your life? Have you dedicated yourself to the pursuit of sin? Or are you pursuing the things of God? You know what sin does? Sin sucks the life out of you. You know what sin is? Sin is a disease that will ultimately kill you. It's amazing how much time we spend on body care and how little time many people spend on soul care. Many of you have lost loved ones to cancer. Some of you, I would imagine, have had cancer and by God's grace, overcome it. A lot of talk about cancer. You see the bumper stickers. Some of them are kind of foul. They're everywhere. Did you know that there are 339 registered charities in Canada alone designed to raise money to battle cancer? 339. Charities have been established just for one disease. The research in cancer. How do we overcome it? How do we conquer cancer? How many research agencies are out there researching the effects of sin? The destructive effects of sin, the eternal effects of sin, studying its deathly results and effects. Remember who you are. How do we remember who you are? We, we worship the Lord. We honor the Lord. We thank the Lord. We do a mental check. Oh, yeah, I just need to remind myself. I think I've forgotten. My actions have demonstrated that I've forgotten. I am a child of the king. I am called to a different way of living than lost people are. Remember who you are. Chapter 3, verse 7, listen to the word preached. This is the second way to ensure that we are prepared for the things that are to come. In chapter 3, I'm going to start reading with verse, at verse 3 and following, were asked a series of questions with obvious answers. You can kind of answer them for yourself. They're like super obvious. And then they lead to an even more obvious question. So here they are. Chapter 3, verse 3 of Amos. Do two walk together unless they've agreed to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion cry out from his den if he has taken nothing? Does a bird fall in a snare on the earth when there is no trap for it? Does a snare spring up from the ground when it has taken nothing? Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? There's a series of questions. You know the answer to them. They're obvious. So here's the point. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? It's obvious. It's obvious. For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared. Who will not fear? The Lord has spoken. Who can but prophesy? So these nations are probably looking around thinking, why, why is it that sometimes life is kind of rough? Because God's involved. He's trying to discipline you. He's trying to get your attention. He's trying to remind you of 
who he is and who you are and how you're supposed to live. And he's done everything in his power to communicate that to you. The verse 7 says, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servants, the prophets. God is never going to damn anyone. He's never going to judge anyone. He's never going to condemn anyone without them first hearing, Hey, you shouldn't do that. Or you should be doing this. Or you need to stop dishonoring me. God has made it clear through creation, through his prophets, through his word, what is true and what is false. And when the lion roars, a reference to God, we should fear him. We should respond to him. One of the questions that should be on our minds all the time is, what would you have me do, Lord? Too often, the question that dominates our thinking is, why didn't you do more, Lord? Well, you can ask that. The psalmist asks that question at times. Although God rarely directly answers it, he just reveals his presence and somehow satisfaction comes from that. If you want to be prepared to meet God, you need to listen to God's word preached. You need to ask, what has God said? What has God warned me of? What has God communicated? And instead of responding with God and retaliatory anger or accusation or disbelief, we should respond to what God has said. So church, are you reading your Bibles? You know how many Christians come to our church? What's our middle name in our church? Bible. And they've never read the Bible. Can you imagine being saved for 5, 10, 15, 20 years, dying and standing before God and saying, I've never actually read your book? I mean, how absurd is that? Ah, maybe I've read a few portions, but you don't want to get to heaven having walked with the Lord for several years and on not even one single occasion read the Bible from cover to cover. And yet many have not. It's too hard. It's too long. I tried and then I got to Leviticus. You know? God is speaking truth to us. We need to hear it. You got time to go to the movies. Got time to throw on Spotify. We need to be people who are studying the word of God so that we can be warned what to avoid and what to do. Instead of living our lives with a lack of gratitude, again, accusing God, using God. You know how many people I think use God even in the church? Remember years ago, I was in a church and we, we had this custom. We'd buy a whole bunch of frozen turkeys. Someone would usually go over to the U.S. and get some cheap turkey there and People could like sign up. People that were kind of down and outers, we we would call them back in the day, and you know they could call and we could provide them a turkey. And I'll never forget that um, this lady called our church, and she called every year. She never come to church, but she called every year for a turkey, and and she said, "Hey, you know, I'm calling for my turkey. I'd like to sign up for my turkey." And okay, what's your name and number, and we'll deliver it on such and such a date. Hung up the phone. 30 seconds later, the phone rings again. Hey, I'm calling about my turkey. I'd like to sign up for my turkey. We're like, you just called. Oh, I already called you? So clearly this person just had their list, right? They called this church and this church and this church, and they weren't really grateful. They were takers. They were users. Just calling through their list of churches, trying to get something from people. Would never respond to an invitation to come to church. Just use the system. Use the resources of God's people. A lot of people like that in culture and in society. 
But how many of us in the church are kind of like that in our walk with God? Oh, I'm, I'm big into prayer when life's challenging and I, I need that job. Man, I'm praying all the time because I hope she says yes when I ask her out. Praying, praying, praying that God will give me children because we haven't been able to have any. And then God provides and the prayer stops all of a sudden. And the reliance stops and the dependency stops. I'm sure we could all say at times we are guilty of using and abusing God's gifts. God is calling us to listen, to respond, so that God ultimately might be glorified in our lives. And in case you're like, well, I don't, I don't like what I'm hearing, God sort of heads off that temptation at the pass in chapter 5, verse 10. We're essentially told, don't shoot the messenger. Check out what it says there. They hate him who reproves in the gate, and they abhor him who speaks the truth. Yeah, sometimes God's word hurts. Sometimes we hear God's word preached or read, we're like, I don't want to hear that. Sometimes we blame the preacher. Sometimes we run from the truth. But know this about God's truth. Why does God give us truth in the first place? Truth reveals so that it can heal. Truth reveals so that it can heal. Never forget this. We don't preach to condemn, we preach to convict. Why do we need to be convicted? Because we need to be healed. We need to know what our stinking thinking is. We need to know when our attitudes are off base. God speaks truth to us so that we can respond to it. Understand who you are. Listen to what God has preached. And then there's a third message for us to ensure that we are prepared. Join the remnant. Join the remnant. This is the third point. Most won't listen, and they might experience punishment or even destruction. Many of the nations that would have heard this message, they didn't respond. There's no record of mass conversions in Ammon or Moab or the Philistine territories of Gaza or Escalon. They just ignored it. And they experience God's destruction. But there is hope because when God crushes, he also wants to restore and redeem. Look what it says in chapter 3, verse 12. Thus says the Lord, he gives an analogy. It's, it's, it's an interesting analogy, but the point is made. Thus says the Lord, as the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion. Who's the lion? In this text, it's God. Because God is the lion who roars in the previous passage we looked at. As the shepherd rescues from the mouth of the lion two legs or a piece of an ear, so shall the people of Israel who dwell in Samaria be rescued with the corner of a couch and part of a bed. So this is interesting. God is both the crusher and the redeemer. He's both the lion and the shepherd. He's both the one that pours out judgment and then rescues us from his own judgment. Isn't that interesting? God judges, he disciplines, he destroys the nations, and at the same time is redeeming people from his own wrath directed toward them. This is God. We have to hold this intention when we think of God. God is not just wrathful, and God is not just our loving redeemer. God is both. At the same time, 
So we live with this fear, this reverence, this awe of God. But at the same time, we can approach him in confidence and hope, looking for redemption. And the analogy is clear. The lion comes and he attacks the sheep or the goat. And he eats the majority of it. But eventually he's satisfied. And he leaves behind a couple of legs or the tassel off the end of an ear. God is calling upon his people. God is going to come and he is going to destroy and he's going to crush. But it'll also offer you a second chance. So like be the ear, be the leg that's left over. Turn to him. Instead of running from him, humble yourself under his mighty hand. Surrender to him. Trust in him. Learn from him. Be humble or you'll stumble. And God, by his grace, can redeem and rescue you to be part of his remnant. So we need to ask ourselves, are we part of his remnant? This is an interesting passage because it's directed towards believers and unbelievers. It's directed towards those that are, have surrendered themselves to God but have lost their way. It's directed towards those that have never surrendered themselves to God. It's directed towards all of us. And even if you are surrendered to God, it's a warning. Like, stay surrendered to God. Don't lose that sense of dependence upon God. Are you at peace? Are you relationally settled? Are you doing well? If you're not walking with God, the answer to that is not really, no. But if you are part of his remnant, if you are part of his holy nation, and you have surrendered yourself to the Lord, then you're experiencing blessings from him. If you want to continue to experience those blessings from the Lord, continue to humble yourself before him. The fourth way that we can know we're prepared is by seeking after the things of God. So seek God and live is the fourth point. This is both a now and a futuristic call. Several times in chapter five, we are called upon to seek God. Look at verse four. Seek me and live, the prophet declares. Verse six, seek the Lord and live, the prophet declares. And then down in verses 14 and 15, seek good and not evil that you may live. Notice every time seeking is tied to living. So what's the opposite? Not seeking is tied to dying. When you run from God, you run towards death. When you seek God, you run towards life. And so the Lord, the God of hosts will be with you. As you have said, hate evil and love good establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. Put aside the things that you have been seeking after. Evil. That list of sins that Israel had committed against God. What's the opposite of that? Well, loving that which is good, establishing justice. Pursue the things of righteousness. That's what it means to seek after God. I want to seek after God. How do I do that? I pursue the things of God. I pursue righteousness. I am pro-life. I am pro-truth. I am pro-honesty. I am pro-sexual maturity and purity. We pursue the things of God. The message then to God's people is if you're running, stop. 
turn around and seek after the things of God. By the way, if God invites you to do something, he will enable you to do it. If God invites you to do something, he'll enable you to do it. So the call to seek after God is not an impossible task. It's a response to God's word preached. It's an obedient step toward God, toward righteousness, and he will enable you to do that. What do we get when we seek after God? Life. Life comes from seeking. Death comes from running. Never forget that. Life comes from seeking. Death comes from running. If you want to die, keep running from God. Keep living your life on your own power, your own steam. Be your own commander, your own captain, your own master, your own Lord. And that'll guarantee you destruction, if not in this life, perhaps even in the next, if you do not know God as your Savior. But seeking after him will lead you to life abundant and life eternal. All creatures want to live. I don't know of any creature that wants to die. All creatures want to live. They'll fight to live. They'll fight for themselves. They'll fight for territory. They'll fight for time. They'll fight to live. But many are dying on the inside because they have refused to surrender to God. Seek after the Lord and live. So let me ask you, are you prepared to meet your God? Are you prepared to meet your God? This is a message for us to be thinking about. It's kind of an old-fashioned message in some respect, but it's a necessary message. We need to humble ourselves in order that God might lift us up. The threat is real, but God's intention is not to crush us and to push us down. It truly is to lift us up so that we might be prepared to meet him, not only in this life, but in the life to come.